The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. We can see that illuminated sign that marks the end of the journey. This vaccine will help us get past this pandemic once and for all. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The thing that's going to stop us from seeing the end of this pandemic are people going, oh, I'm not so sure. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. And good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepke. Now, Boris Johnson is expected to speak to his EU counterparts, Roger, this week amid the continuing row over COVID vaccine supplies. On Thursday, European leaders are going to discuss a ban on the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine from being exported to the UK. The Prime Minister is aiming to make his case, though, with those European leaders in one-on-one phone calls before that. Now, the Care Minister, Helen Waitley, is calling for both sides to, quote, work together to maximise the production of the jabs. Ursula von der Leyen, the uh, EU president, made the commitment to the prime minister that the EU wouldn't block companies from fulfilling fulfilling their contractual obligations to supply vaccinations. And the EU must absolutely stand by that commitment. Meanwhile, ministers are keeping a close eye on rising infection rates in Europe, essentially leaving a question mark over whether summer holidays abroad will be allowed this year. But growing numbers of Conservative backbench MPs want the travel rules eased. They say they'll vote against some of them, extending Britain's emergency COVID laws until October. Well, joining us now is Tobias Elwood, Conservative MP and chair of the Defence Select Committee. Tobias, welcome to the programme and thanks for being with us. Um, let me first ask you about the whole vaccine export crisis, as it seems to be. I mean, it seems to many people this is a battle which neither side gains, really. No, no one does. Well, there is a winner, and that's the pandemic, because we're not able to get on top of it, as we're able to do in this country. And what we see in the continent is sad on a couple of counts. Firstly, is the bun fight that we're seeing between countries and indeed Britain. And secondly, people reluctant to actually take the vaccine. We have storages, of, you know, up to a million in some countries that are not actually being distributed. So we need to get that message across, you know, take that vaccine so we can kill this uh, pandemic. But more importantly, improve the coordination between countries. We do not want to see nationalism or protectionism in, the, in this way. Mm. What about when it comes to the border issues, the extension of the restrictions, the COVID restrictions? Is there good reason now, given that we've vaccinated half the population, is there good reason to ease them more quickly uh, now that, you know, the vaccine rollout has gone well here? No, because that ties into your very first question. There's no uh, point in us or there would be a danger, in fact, to us opening up our borders when we'd be sending people to places where the, the actual pandemic is still rife. Don't forget that whilst adults in this country, you know, may be vaccinated and huge tribute to the government for now getting across the halfway mark with adults, children won't be receiving the vaccine and they could be asymptomatic, bring the, va- you know, bring the pandemic or another variant of it back to the UK and that could then cause further problems. It's so important that, you know, that the, we rise the bar right across the world because we're only safe if we're all safe. So it's so important that the EU gets its act together. I'm minded to think that actually if you handed it over to NATO instead of the EU, 
<laughs> perhaps they could have got the job done better. But what about the extension, the, the restrictions within the UK, you know, within England, really, I suppose, things that we can and can't do, uh, the prospects of being able to get together. I'm surely once more than half of the adults in the country have been vaccinated, that's the moment we can say, well, actually, we can speed this roadmap up. I think you're right. We could speed this roadmap up, but it's all determined on the data itself, getting that R rating down. And thankfully, we have seen a reduction in hospitalizations, in deaths, indeed in cases as well. And we need to make sure that that can be sustained because every time you open something up, there's more likely that pandemic can continue to spread. So can we mitigate that? Can we control that? And I think it was wise for the Prime Minister to be cautious, but as you imply, if we get better results, then yes, we can bring, bring forward those opportunities to liberate ourselves and get back to some form of new normal. Yeah, indeed. Uh, because there does seem to be a lot of uh, boiling, simmering anger out there, um, seen perhaps through the prism of protests, right? What about this crime and police bill? There's a lot of anger about um, the provisions to restrict, limit perhaps protesting. Which way are you going to vote on it? Well, this has got caught up a little bit, I'm afraid, in the very tragic you know, case to do with the demonstrations around Sarah Everard, a very tragic event that took place. Ultimately, you know, people wanted to demonstrate. I'm sorry it went as it did on, on Clapham Common. But this bigger picture of the right to demonstrate, unfortunately, because of Twitter and social media, it's very easy to spontaneously you know, get a, 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 uh, a demonstration up and running very, very quickly. And sometimes it has a violent edge to it, as we saw uh, you know, with the Extinction Rebellion people, where they're gluing themselves to, to trains and so forth. That isn't the peaceful way to demonstrate. You can absolutely continue to demonstrate, but you have to go through the procedures to allow that to happen. There is no chance of us trying to quash that at all. What we're trying to say is you absolutely demonstrate, but please do it. You have a responsibility, given the sheer numbers uh, of people that now turn up to these things and the wider public that want to continue their everyday business. But, but so, so to be clear on this, you would be backing the bill as it stands at the moment? Yes, because I think because the, 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 the sort of banner headline messages that have come from this is somehow that we're trying to prevent uh, uh, any form of demonstrations. That's completely wrong. You just have to register them in the, in the correct way, such as the scale. You know, if a few people gather spontaneously just with a couple of placards outside Parliament, I don't think anybody's going to pay too much attention. But what we're seeing now is huge numbers that then take over areas, stop the actual traffic or go through the high streets, you know, affecting businesses and so on. And the general public as well are saying, hang on a minute, where did this come from? We had no warning. So if you're seeing these scale demonstrations, absolutely it's right that they are then, you know, done, controlled and are peaceful. And then the police can be informed and they can actually help out with monitoring the traffic and helping making sure it ends up peacefully. Okay, Tobias, I want to discuss also another um, topic separately. So the military overhaul, we're getting more details about this. Among them, a new future commando force is being created, which will see the Royal Marines take on many of the traditional tasks of the special forces. And it's suggested that the army could lose around 10,000 troops. Now, the Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, says that the aim is to make sure that the UK's military is fully prepared for evolving threats around the globe. What I will be doing is making sure we have an armed forces that's the right size to meet the threat and the right size to meet the government's ambition of having a global Britain that can uphold values and support its allies. So that was the Defence Secretary there. Um, Tobias Elwood, what do you make then of this military plan? Well, let's take them in two sections. Firstly, the advancement of the SF. We have some of the best special forces 
in the world, and they're going to get even better now that this range of force is there. That'll improve our forensic lethality and mobility. But there's more to it than just killing the enemy or taking out a non-state actor. You then have to rebuild. You have to you know, provide the, uh, uh, the stabilization capabilities. What did we learn in Afghanistan? You, just defeating the enemy is not enough. And what we're seeing with the shrinking of our armed forces, which is colossal, is an operational and strategic uh, mistake, in my view. You know, we are going to lose that conflict, conflict prevention capability, peacekeeping, nation-building skills. And when we lose that, we retract, we step away from that, it'll get filled either by, you know, other nations, such as China and Russia, that will have their very own agenda uh, to pursue. Or indeed, uh, the vacuum is then filled by the enemy allowed to regroup. I think this is very, very dangerous what we're going down here. I'm afraid it's all about money because the dangers, as spelled out the integrated review last week, are equating to the, the scale of the Cold War. Different, more complex, absolutely. But defense spending was 4% of GDP um, then. Today it's 2.2. We're in peacetime mode, but we're in constant conflict. We need but to move to 3% if we're to have any uh, effect whatsoever and keep our nation secure, which ultimately is the primary responsibility of any government. But, Tobias, we, we had an expert on uh, the programme last week, in fact, from the Royal United Services Institute, who said it's all very well having the numbers, having, you know, the extra numbers, men on the ground to wave the flags, if you like. But unless they can actually achieve something with the kind of tech that competes with the likes of China and Russia, there's actually no point in that. And surely if we have a limited pie, we've got to spend a big <coughs> chunk of that on the tech. Well, this is then where is a threat. I don't think China actually wants to go direct war with us. We're, we're more likely to see... You know, conflict done through what done through um, proxies. Uh, so you know, where there's space in Af Africa, for example, if we don't step forward, China will. And once China is in that country, it will not leave. Once Russia has moved into Syria, it has not departed. And the West is getting smaller and smaller. China's influence is getting larger and larger. And that's simply because we're not able to do that engagement, that wider defence posture, because our armed forces have become so small. I don't doubt that we have to pivot to the tech. But let's look back at mm. Afghanistan. We had all the technology we needed and against a, a, a pretty basic adversary, and we still mm. lost. Uh, what about um, increasing nuclear warheads? That was also a kind of banner headline that was taken away from that. Is that necessary? Is that a wise um, level of spending? Indeed, the UK has pledged to, to, to disarm, not to increase the number, right? Yeah, this was a surprise. It was poorly explained. But I actually agree with the decision here, partly because the nuclear threat itself is changing. The types of nuclear systems, that weapon systems that are now uh, uh, around are actually very worrying and very lethal. They're different. You now get low-yield battlefield tactical weapons. If we need to have those in our arsenal as well as the 100 uh, kilotons, uh, then we need to have a more variety, more versatility. I'm afraid our adversaries have better defenses as well which means that if you were to ever, heaven forbid, use one of these missiles, you'd have to send more into the very same target to make sure one of them actually penetrates to get through. And then finally, there's actually more countries that have nuclear weapons. China, for example, who don't actually declare how many they've got. The world is getting more dangerous, and we can absolutely you know, uh, make a marker and say we're going to stay to where we were uh, five, ten years ago. But ultimately, the world around us is getting, uh, because it's getting more dangerous, we have to adapt. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. 
join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. And we begin, Caroline, with vaccines. Yes, indeed. That record-breaking weekend. Were you out there getting your jab? Because at one point, the NHS was delivering 27 jabs per second, resulting in more than 750,000 doses being given. That is the largest single day of vaccination on record. So the UK has also passed the milestone of inoculating more than half of all adults. Meanwhile, uh, with the vaccine process, nonetheless, the pandemic continues to take an economic toll. According to the Resolution Foundation, half of all workers here saw their a fall in real terms last year. The report found the plight of those hit hardest by the pandemic contrasts with official data, which shows a sharp rebound in average earnings following the first lockdown. Now, the think tank says this disparity is due to the disproportionate impact of the crisis. It's battered areas like hospitality, where workers are typically young and low paid. And finally, this could be a very dramatic week for Scotland's government. After months, the Salmond Inquiry proceedings will come to some sort of conclusion early this week, with both reports on the First Minister Nicola Sturgeon and her government's handling of the harassment complaints against her predecessor set to be published within the next 48 hours. Whatever the detail of those reports, the SNP leader also has to try and survive a no-confidence vote in Holyrood alongside an expected public intervention from Alex Sam- himself. Politico argues that for the first time since she became First Minister in 2014, Sturgeon's job is genuinely on the line. But now let's talk about Bristol. Five arrests have been made so far after violent protests in that city overnight resulted in two police officers suffering broken bones and more injuries. The crowd gathered for the Kill the Bill demonstration opposed to the Police and Crime Bill currently going through Parliament. But following a peaceful demonstration, rioters then smashed the windows of a police station, set vehicles on fire. The Avon and Somerset Police Chief Constable Andy Marsh has promised very serious consequences for those involved in the disorder. And Caroline, a promise to publish pictures are those who are wanted by police at the end of the day. Yeah, by the end of the day. Well, joining us now is the Labour Mayor of Bristol, Marvin Rees. Marvin, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, On a very difficult day for you, I know that you've told The Telegraph already that you thought that a number of the protesters were from outside of Bristol, but I'd like to understand um, what you think actually happened in that protest last night and why you think it turned so violent. Well, I think there was some people who um, basically almost um, attend demos as a way of life. And some of those people will also attend demos as a way of life and look for opportunities to engage in uh, violent confrontation as part of their efforts to live out their fantasy of being uh, revolutionaries. And they then target symbols and people who are symbolic, as they see it, of the establishment that they are trying to take on. They obviously, you know, they were there. Uh, they, they they saw a demo. They saw an opportunity, um, and they took it. And it's absolutely unacceptable. And we absolutely condemn it in Bristol. It's not part of what we are and are trying to build in Bristol. But is there a sense that perhaps part of this is is anger built up over what has been often all a very difficult year for all sorts of reasons? I don't give. There's no. There's no out for them on that. We know this is a bit of a a thing where people you know, seriously attending demos to demo. My, my One of my cabinet members just that was just sharing this morning as she walked along um, uh, yesterday on an afternoon walk, or no, two days ago on an afternoon walk, um, two two people walking along and one said to the other, are you going to the demonstration? And the other one said, yeah, what's it about? 
you know, this this does happen. This, this, and, and this is political illiteracy writ large as well. They, they profess, I, I, they should not be even mentioned alongside the genuine conversations and concerns around this police and crime bill. But mm. let's just, let's just do for a second uh, suspend that, that they, they have just banked up a load of stuff that is going to be taken by the advocates of the bill as evidence of the need for the bill. So, you know, strategy out the window. They, they've just strengthened, strengthened the case for it, which is absolutely ridiculous. Secondly, in the city of Bristol, we're dealing with real issues, homelessness, mental health, domestic violence, child hunger, um, digital exclusion. These people did nothing to help us take on the very real challenges that Bristolians are facing right now. Yeah, so, but- and that's it's a self-indulgent, selfish, self-centred act. Okay, that's quite dismissive then. I mean, uh, there were surely elements of genuine protest there. And actually part of the the reason that the protest is taking place against the police and crime bill is that it's marginalised communities that need that voice of protest the most. Um, but I suppose uh, you know, the, the question is, how can you then sort of separate? How can you prevent this kind of violence from happening whilst also allowing the kind of real protest to take place? So I think we need to make a very clear distinction uh, between those people who attended the protest out of concern and those people who turned it into a violent confrontation. Two are not necessarily the same, and there were people today distancing themselves from uh, the violence because they feel that the violence is now a hijacked a debate about the crime bill that was very legitimate. And like I said, it's, what it would do is it would be used as evidence for those who support the bill. Secondly, in terms of the marginalised, I think there'll be an interesting piece of work to look at the demographic of those people who participated. I, both before being elected and while being elected, work with uh, leaders from our black and Asian communities in particular. Um, when I say in particular, I mean who are really looking at those people who often get the rough end of the criminal justice system and poor white communities around the city. We work very closely. They are not in touch. They, there is no connection between the everyday efforts to bring justice uh, for our communities and those people who engaged in the activity, uh, you know, the, the violence um, that they brought to our city uh, last night. Um, so that's why I say it's, it's, it's selfish and self-centered. It was about them. It was about their fantasy of uh, being revolutionaries that they are not. Um, had nothing to do with the everyday struggles of people in the city. Would you describe them as Avon and Somerset Police Federation did as a mob of animals? I mean, it sounds pretty inflammatory. Is that what you think? I understand why they would do that. I, but my, my, I more accurately think that they, they are fantasists. They, you know, there are people who run around trying to think that they're taking on the system when they are not. What they are doing is they are, in, you know, indulging their privileged lifestyles to, you know, run around going from demo to demo and look for uh, violent uh, conflict. Like I say, the test is, what have you done that helps me in Bristol meet the needs of the 25% of our children who live in income-deprived households, the 20% who are at risk of hunger? Those many thousands of children are suffering from total exclusion. Those people getting off to poor starts in life that mean they're disproportionately likely to end up in mental health and, and criminal justice systems. There is okay. no connection between what they did and our struggles in this city. Okay, um, are Bristolians losing too many freedoms then? Where is the balance of rights when it comes to the pandemic versus sort of protests? I mean, that's, um, it's not just the protests in Bristol, but there have been obviously many in London also. And there is that idea that, that the pandemic uh, and now this crime bill um, is going to sort of, it is essentially curtailing entirely protest. I think that's a very legitimate debate. But it's, it, it's not the debate that those who come and brought violence to the city last night are a part of. 
um, I think they'll jump on many issues um, and, and look for conflict. I think the number of people around a Black Lives Matter rally last year. And listen, I'm a, I'm a black man. You know, I have I, I believe Black Lives Matter. And I, I think the statement needs to be made. It shouldn't be have to be made, just like we shouldn't have to state that women should be safe on our streets. But that we're not, and, and it does need to be made. There are people who would come along to those events and look for their own uh, for their own selfish ends to co-opt those events and take advantage of them and you know pursue their own uh, fantasies. But there are there are debates around our, our, our freedoms, of course there are, and that, that should always be live. But what they were doing last night was not part of that debate. Marvin, there'll be people who look at this and they look at the Black Lives Matter protests last year. They look at the throwing of the statue into the harbour. They say, "What is it with Bristol? I mean, what, why is it happening there?" Is it down to people like yourself not really controlling and sorting out issues on the ground that it comes to this? No, I think that, that I mean, people may, they may say that, but I, I think what we um, have in the city is a, is a city that has a long history of debate. And actually, the way we've conducted ourselves over the last year has been a real source of pride. And I would say national and international envy. We've dealt with some very contentious um, issues, some points that could have easily turned into um, open conflict. Um, because it's a complicated world, it's an unequal world, and, and there are uh, frustrations, but we've come through them together without violent uh, conflict on our streets. And uh, when I spoke nationally and internationally, it's been a real source of pride, and people have said, well, how have you done that? These people came to our city last night, and they robbed us of that, and, and that's unforgivable. And it, you know, So um, yeah. it's up for us to not allow our story to be hijacked uh, by these uh, role-play, uh, role-play revolutionaries. Uh, look, protest is currently, um, you know, unlawful at the moment because of the COVID restrictions. How are you and the Avon and Somerset Police now going to deal with any future, um, any future process or gatherings in the city, which the local uh, police force say are, are, you know, in a normal year, almost daily or certainly weekly? Well, you have to. I mean, one is there are tactical decisions to be made on the ground in very uh, challenging circumstances, and the police have had a, you know, it's been a a ferociously difficult time for the police um, over the last year. They have to make health interventions. They're trying to maintain their relationships with the public for the future as well. So it's not just about what you do in any incident. It's about the legacy of that confrontation as well. And you you see that um, in, in London last week, lots of damaged relationships that won't help police in the future. So you, you're thinking about the immediate, uh, but you're thinking about the long term. You know, our point in, in the city is just to say that yeah, the, the, raise, the points you're raising, we recognise them and we will raise them. So hopefully that's a bit of a valve. No one, you know, the concerns being raised about this bill and about other um, aspects in city life that people might like to protest on, uh, the, the, the city leadership uh, recognises them. You know? And by the way, I mean, when we're talking about poverty and marginalisation, I didn't, I didn't see those stories in a, in a Ken Loach film or read about them in a book. I lived them. So actually in coming to political office, I come with that commitment to, to poverty, so to tackling poverty. So, uh, you know, we want people to know that we, we, we take them seriously so they don't have to go out. But if they do have to go out, we do, if they do feel they need to go out, we need to work with people to try and avoid these violent confrontations. But where people are actually committed to the violent confrontation, then we have to take um, appropriate action. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.